All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity. Over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast with your hosts, Jair Handley and me, Chris Winder. Just two nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is the place, and nerds run the world. Without further ado. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Today we have author and Dragon Award finalist Mark Wandry here as our special Yay. guest. Woohoo! All right, so Mark is the best-selling author of military science fiction and zombie apocalypse novels. He's been creating new worlds since he was old enough to hold a pen, and before that a crown, and has written 14 novels, at least as of the time he wrote his Amazon profile, and if it's wrong, I blame him. Um, he's located in rural Tennessee and launched his professional writing career in 2004 with the release of Earth Song Overture. He prefers to read and write science fiction, especially military science fiction and space opera. So is that right? Do we get yeah, it right? Sounds pretty accurate. I think we're up to 16 books, actually. So I guess I better update wow. my Amazon profile. <laughs> All right. So the second no. part. Now, I, I have a question, JR. Say crayon. Crayon. How many syllables are you saying? Crayon, too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It sounds like three or four, but go ahead. <laughs> are, you, are you making fun of me? Is this like an no, anti Virginia never. thing? Never. Never. That it would never happen. Don't make me come all the way to Arizona to pimp slap you. <laughs> I've heard of a bitch slap, but never a pimp slap. That's a new one. Uh, maybe that's a regional thing. I don't know. All right. So the, 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 the second part of the introduction, dear listener, is when we tell uh, the tell you where we first found them. So I actually first found Mark through the Four Horsemen series. He co-wrote with um, author Chris Kennedy. I was a fan of Chris's um, Theogony Universe books. So when he started this new venture, I gave it a shot. Um, we've then met in person at HonorCon. Um, and we've engaged in many fun discussions about life, politics, and science fiction. He's even publicly disavowed my appreciation for Starship Troopers, uh, the movie, yeah. during a panel. Uh, that's right. Oh he called God. me out at HonorCon in front of God and Country. Damn straight, and I'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Chris? How did you find Mark? Well, Mark and I used to be traveling salesmen. Um, basically, I'd stink up behind the customer He'd get real close. I'd get on my hands and knees, and he'd push him over, and then we'd sell him a ton of bandages. It, it was great. 
Um, one day, Mark started feeling bad about it, though, not just because he was getting older and, you know, the pushing people over was becoming hard on his back, uh, but also because it felt like we'd just be doing it forever. I agreed. So Mark and I decided we were going to find the real meaning to life. We're going to find out what was most important, the most wonderful thing in the universe. And Mark found it. Uh, can I tell him what it is, Mark, or do you want to tell him? No, go right ahead. It is antimatter. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, that was an impressive long spiel of bullshit going there. (laughs) And I can tell you, because Chris forgot the interview was today, it was all on the fly, too. Nice, nice. (laughs) If anybody's wondering what that antimatter stuff is about, the the Four Horsemen universe up until relatively recently, antimatter never really makes an appearance. And everybody, it it kind of became a, a running joke. Someone would say they're going to write a short story with antimatter in it, and I would just post a little meme on the internet that said, no. <laughs> Had to be done. If you've read Dark Moon Arisen, uh, maybe that that question actually has kind of been answered by why there's no animator, why there was no animator present in the Four Horsemen universe. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Didn't um, author Terry uh, Mixon do some stories about that as well in the yeah, anthologies? He wrote, he wrote a short in, uh, I think it was a few credits more about uh, a scientist working for the science guild kind of messing around with antimatter against the rules and the repercussions. And he actually, I think he wrote me in as a scientist in that actually saying that it wasn't allowed or something like that. Nice. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mark. So I have my mouse over the kick button, the religion question, star Wars, star Trek or firefly. Uh, Yes, please. Oh, I like no preference. No. Well, if I was going to call preference, I would have to, be cornered into Firefly, but the problem is they murdered it before it had a chance to grow up. So um, Ah. at this point, it's probably Star Trek because, or Star Wars because, oh God, hold on. Now I'm in a corner. Um, They've killed killed Star Trek with STD and they're in the process of murdering Star Wars with the new movies. So (laughs) I'm going to go watch replays of Firefly. I'll catch you later. All right. So what do you love about science fiction as a genre? I know you write in several, at least before, two genres. But hold on. Hold oh, on. Before go. we before we go there, I have to say when he got the uh, the acronym, you know that they know how fans refer to the episodes as the original and all of that. So I have to conclude, given the complaints about the Star Trek Discovery, that the people writing it weren't Star Trek fans or they would have realized that the initials for their show was STD. They claim to have been Star Trek fans, but when you watch any of it, um, it, it's almost like everyone says the the the, uh, the TV the movies done uh, came out with were were horrible, but the reality is actually it was a nice little reset of the canon. And what were they supposed to use? Use 1960s science special effects anyway? I, I didn't have a problem with it. They play with it, they roll with, it, and they went down the road. Okay, fine. Con was disgusting, but whatever. Uh, but when they did <laughs> STD, they they literally it's like, okay, you're going to make a new series. Let's redo all this stuff. Why? We really don't have a reason. Oh, let's put an extra dollop of political correctness involved just because we're trying to suck everybody's ass in the process. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't have an opinion. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sorry. I I never thought about that. Yeah. I was just a, I was just a dumb viewer nodding, nodding and smiling and eating crayons. (laughs) 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 All right. So what do you love about science fiction as a genre? Uh, what isn't there to like about it? I mean, I, I cut my teeth on science fiction when I read my first sci-fi book at about age seven or eight. Um, I was forced to do a book report, and I didn't I didn't like anything that I'd read in the library. 
because I grew up in a Louis L'Amour family, and you know that really oh, wasn't yeah. terribly what I call entertainment. Hey, um, now. so <laughs> so I uh, mm. I went to the library and I looked for something different. I, I found the science fiction section, and I liked Star Trek kind of. I was very young when it came out, but it was interesting. I thought it was kind of silly. And I saw this book called called uh, The Rolling Stones by Robert A. Heinlein. And I looked at it, and it's, oh. it had like a spaceship on it and stuff. And I said, "Okay," and I read it, and that was it. Uh, my first exposure to written science fiction just changed my entire view. And I, other than other than zombies, I've never found a, a genre that just uh, spoke to me anything more. I was a space nut from a young age. Uh, I was really disappointed watching all the stuff going into space, and I was literally at the other corner of the of the country, so I had no chance of ever seeing any of that kind of stuff. And it just continued to evolve. I was in an aerospace family. My dad did was did machining work for Boeing. So all of that stuff was part of my entire life. Science fiction just read into what I believed things should be. I saw that shining city on another planet in our future in 1969 when we set foot on the moon. Everybody knew by the end of the 70s or the early 80s, we'd have a lunar colony. We'd be looking at going to Mars. Hmm. And then politics came. Yeah, yeah. I had big expectations for the year 2000. Oh, yeah. I, I wanted to be able to make that fly that Pan Am flight to the space station and make phone video phone calls. Well, I, can make, I can make a video call, but the whole space thing's kind of on hold. Right. All right. So, so what was your first real attempt at writing science fiction from just, you know, from going from enjoying it to actually writing it? Uh, it was about a year after reading Heinlein's books. Uh, I started trying to write my own stuff. Uh, I called myself a writer from that day forward is what I was going to be. Um, I wrote little books where I drew pictures of dinosaurs and wrote stories about how they'd come back. I actually created Jurassic Park 50 years, 40 years before the movie ever came out. Uh, of course, I didn't actually get it published, so I'm kind of screwed in that department. But uh, you're not allowed to like the movie because there was a book, right? Isn't that the rules you set up? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Crichton wrote the book. Michael Crichton wrote the book. Good book, by mm-hmm. the way. I think he found a copy of my little drawings or something and had the whole idea. But that's what I'm Pro- telling you. Right probably. Now. Yeah. Uh, it, that's it, it. Just I literally from that point on, I began writing and writing and writing. Took my first actual writing class in high school, creative writing. Which if you taken if you took high school creative writing in the nineteen seventies, what you realized it was was poetry and prose and stuff. So I wrote a science fiction story for a project, and the teacher read it and said, um, "You're never going to be a writer." Hmm. So uh, yeah, I ignored him and did it anyway. It only took me forty years, but I figured it out. <laughs> No, really, I'm entirely, I'm entirely self-taught, and my editors will attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> and now your stories have outlived your teacher. Uh, probably. He would probably be in his 90s. Yeah, okay, so he's dead, and I'm still writing. Ha-ha, I win. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Isn't that why everyone tries to get old, so you can outlive your enemies? Yeah, I, I think so. It's, it's actually one of my dreams of what I've done with uh, my writing is that maybe someday, 100 years from now, someone will – Find one of my books and read it and enjoy it. And, and even more than my kid, you know, well, the same as my kid, it's a, it's a writing like this is a way of touching immortality in some ways. You know, I read books of a man who has been dead for decades and other people read books of, for people who've been dead for centuries. Absolutely. Uh, they go on. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. So who do you think has been the largest influence in your writing? Was it Heinlein or is there anyone you try to emulate? Well, um, my every, people who read my stuff go, well, it reads a lot like Heinlein, and my response is, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. He was the biggest influence. I tend to write in a style similar to his, but I also followed uh, Alan Dean Foster's work extensively, both his tie-in work, which is brilliant. The man could turn a movie into a book in six weeks. He was unbelievable. 
and his work in his own uh, Flinks, uh, Flink, uh, uh, Flinks and Pip universe. It's really good stuff. and was very influential to my initial development. Heinlein, the only downside about him is he didn't write in a cohesive universe. He tried to put it together later and explain how it was the same universe, but it was kind of ham-fisted, and I think the editors, the publishers talked him into it. Uh, whereas uh, Alan Dean Foster's main universe was cohesive, and that was my first look at a series. I loved that kind of stuff before a lot of people did. If you remember the 1980s and 70s, nobody wrote series. They were all standalone books mostly. There was a few standouts, exceptions, but generally speaking, they were one-offs, tons and tons of one-offs. Uh, that's changed almost completely reversed now. Who, who writes standalone books these days? Right. It's mostly series because series sell. Yep. Everybody wants to pick up a book and know there's lots more coming. Yep. They want to see what happens next to the characters. Exactly. All right. So transitioning away from the writing side, let's talk about things from a fan angle. So have you written or written? Have you gotten any cool fan art or a fan cosplay of your characters yet? Uh, as anybody who follows me knows, Chris has been getting delightful amounts of fan cosplay from the the Golden Award point of view and stuff, and for a while, I got absolutely nothing, which was driving me literally insane. I, I created the Four Horsemen universe and brought Chris in, and he gets all the cosplay. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bitter about it, not at all. And uh, so, a Dragon Con, I, uh, two of Casey uh, Azell, he she's a writer in the Horsemen universe, also an exceptional writer who won the Baines Award for the best short story of the year, by the way. Um, she had two of her friends who were also pilots cosplayed uh, Cartwright's Cavaliers dropship pilots. So that was really my first all out time to actually see me do it. It was, it was pretty freaking cool too. You want to know a secret? I'm going to tell just you and our, and our what 12 listeners, but uh, <laughs> as the, the person that created the universe, all the cosplay is your cosplay. You could claim all of it. Take that Chris. <sighs> Take that. Yeah, I, su- I, I suppose, but I don't think Chris will agree. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that was Chris Kennedy. We were referring to the uh, the co-author. So yes, yeah. My my basically when I created the universe, I wrote just one book, and I brought Chris in when I was about halfway through. I had him look at it, and he liked it, and he said, "Let's do this together." And I said, "That's a great idea." And now two year two and a half years later, and forty five authors having written in our universe, I think we did something right. Heck yeah! Well, you've made so uh, part of the delineation of responsibilities is Chris cleans the audio up at the end. I schedule everything and do the show prep, and so you know, finding all those show notes, you've come up often enough that I added you to our commonly referenced link document, so I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. So you nice. you finally made it. That's how I when I messaged you that day that you uh you made it to Story Tropes, the website. That's how. Oh, I, yeah, I was on Tropes. I saw that. Who who does that? Who adds that stuff anyway? I, I think they're guests like Wiki. You just anybody can do it. I don't know how uh-huh. that works, but when I saw that, I was like, cool. What I love is there's dudes out there that have had a couple hundred book sales and they have their own Wiki page, and I'm still not there. I'm kind of curious when it's going to happen. I think they make their own. I bet that's what it is. You can't actually. You're not allowed to do your own Wikipedia page. Uh, I'm sure there are ways around that if you're creative enough. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm being organic about it. I'm looking forward to that day when somebody says, hey, you have a Wikipedia page. I'll be like, really? What lies they tell about me? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, finally, uh, what's the weirdest or funniest story about an interaction with a fan that you've had since you started writing? Weirdest or funniest, huh? Um, can it be, it has to be an actual fan or just somebody who found out I'm a writer? Whatever. It's your, it's your show, bud. <laughs> Joy and I were in, um, Kansas, I believe, at a place where there were where there's still uh, remnants of tracks from uh, from uh, you know immigration out west from uh, covered wagons. They actually this crossing at a river. There was so many wagons went across that they cut a, a, a notch out of the hill from the wagon tracks. We went there to see it, 
history like that really fascinates me. And I want to write all the history at some point as well. While we were there, it was a really hot day. And there was almost nobody there except for their family. It was a guy and his wife and his very, very excited kid who loved talking about everything. And we had Splunk the Fae with us because we took her all across the country and took pictures with her. Joyce posted a lot of them and everything. She has her own Wikipedia page, Splunk does, from the Four Horsemen universe. Anyway, the kid loved Splunk and wanted to take him. And we're like, no, you can't have Splunk. And he says, well, what's it about? What's it about? And he says, well, it's from his his world. And the father immediately goes, oh, you're right. And Joy goes, oh, yeah, he's right. He's got lots of books. And I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Because I can see it coming. And the dude, sure enough, says, what do you expect him to say? Well, I have an idea for a book. <laughs> and I'm never getting that hour back because it was the most single, most cringeworthy idea for a book I've ever heard, which he mostly dreamed and involved being transported to a fantasy world and killing reptile kings and, and having rock concerts and stuff. I mean, it was it, it was like, I, I can't describe it. If it was actually a book, it would probably be one of the worst books ever written. And all the while, I'm nodding and trying to get my wife to hurry up so we can get up the hill and get the hell out of there. <laughs> it, was, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Because what do you say to somebody like that? Hey, that sucks. Catch you later. You know, you don't want to end up in somebody's basement like a lock up to into a table or something like that. Well, well, for the record, when you say it was the worst thing ever, just remember, Sharknado made it into a movie. And not just one movie, multiple movies. I would say now? Sharknado would probably be worthy of an Oscar compared to this idea. Oh, dang. It was, it, it was really, really bad. But, you know, you, as a writer who came up from the beginning when I sold, you know, 10 books a month, maybe if I was lucky, you develop the right skills you have then. And what it, that skill is you never piss off a random potential fan. Because they can do a lot of damage to you on the internet with just saying, hey, I met this guy and he's an asshole. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to be nice to some degree. And, and Joy actually saved it by saying, that's a great idea. You should write it. Because <laughs> he wanted me to write it. He says, really, totally, you can have this idea and write it. And I won't say it was my idea. I'm like, yeah, that's never going to happen. You just tell him you're too busy. I guess I. Uh, that's more or less what we said. Yeah. I guess I don't write because he had no problem mocking me in public. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I know what it is. They're not laughing at you. They're laughing with you. That's it. Anyway, all right. Well, well, hand, handle your army. What can we do? <laughs> Zing. All right. So this is the part of the interview where we list out the various series that Mark has written. Um, he's written the Revolution Revelations Cycle, which is a Four Horsemen Universe series. The Omega War series. This is also a Four Horsemen Universe series. Jim Cartwright at Large series. Another Four Horsemen Universe uh, series. You sensing a theme? Four Horsemen Tales. I'm not going to tell you where that one's from. I'm going to leave you guessing. Um, Earth Song Cycle series, Avatars Overture, Chronicles of the Chosen, and Turning Point series, Zombies. Actually, uh, the the first one, Avatars Overture, that's actually part of that was the that's actually Earth Song too before it was renamed because some hack of a, of a producer made a movie called Avatar and kind of killed that. It killed my buzz on that one, so I renamed it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was just still up on Amazon when I pulled it, so it's probably somebody selling it. It is. I, I'm not famous enough to have them actually respond to me when I say, please get rid of that tripe off my page, so it's up there forever. When you, when you delete it, it doesn't automatically go away? Nope. As long as there's a copy out there somewhere for sale, it will stay up forever. And since I actually sold a few hundred copies and they're in various bookstores, I'm stuck. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Well, if I if I was George R. R. Martin, they they'd probably take it down in ten seconds flat. <laughs> right. Yeah, but you finished series. Zing. <laughs> yeah. Actually, none of those ones. Well, Revelation Cycle's done. Yes. Yeah, so I actually I have finished the series. 
the, the Earth Song, uh, the Earth Song uh, cycle is in book six right now, being released in a few days. And I have a couple more books ready to, fin- to, to finish with that. And I'll, I'll be able to wrap that one up by next year. Outstanding. So while all of those sound like amazing books, today we're going to focus on his Earth Song Cycle series. And I picked this series because I haven't heard him talk about it. And so here we are. So how did you come up with the idea or premise for this series? Where did the spark of inspiration come from? Uh, it came from a combination of two things. One, Stargate SG-1, and the other was uh, Ender's Game. And the idea I had was uh, I, I thought Stargate really underutilized the potential for these, these Stargates traveling around, partly because they were limited only to humans and stuff like that. And that obviously was a special effects concern. Uh, but the other thing was Ender's Game. Is he, he, Ender's Game is the beginning of the Ender's Saga, which I think there's 11 books now, all said, maybe wow. 12. And it was a brilliant idea when he made Ender's Game. Then he had three books that follow up with it, and he spends three books apologizing for what he did in the first book. Uh, you know, it, it never made any sense to me. And I thought, well, what if a kid in a similar situation, young person, doesn't regret what they've done if they're remade into this warrior commander and moves forward? That was my inspiration for the Earth Song series. The the first book takes place pretty much modern day, and Earth is destroyed in the in the, in the process by a catastrophe, and uh, an element of humanity is saved and moved to another planet in the Bellatrix system. Actually, twenty uh, three light no uh, x number of light years away, and um, then the second book picks up five hundred years later with her a descendant of that same person. And her being trained to be what's known as a, a chosen. These are the ones who serve the aliens who rescued us because nothing's free in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And she's only 13 years old when she joins. And she has to become a warrior leader of this group. And that's kind of what this is about. Okay. Well, you um, answered the next question, which was the uh, Stargate vibe and whether it was intentional. So I'm, Absolutely. Yeah. Which, uh, was there anything specific about the Stargate franchise that appealed to you besides just the generic um, The Gates? Um, I, I love the exploration qualities and that some worlds they they got into later where they started really touching on worlds that were non non compatible for humans and how they handled it with the robots and stuff. And I really tried to build some of that in because I think they did it well. They sent through the said now is the app thinking of zero point modules. They had a name for the robot and it was this clunky little nineteen nineties mouth. That's it. The the clunky nineteen nineties crappy track robot with the the ambiguous arm. It actually was almost a complete copy of the one they used for the movie with Spader. And uh, it was a good idea. You'd just send it through and it would take a look around. And, and you know, they, if it was livable, they would go. Even a few episodes they went through and found the mouth like there still from the previous episode. It was a really good idea. And I wanted to, to build more of that in. And I like the interconnectivity they did between them. The difference I did in mine is there's no, uh, there's no control module on the Stargates. Instead, there's control rods that people can get that allows you to dial gates and control where they go and all that sort of stuff so i took the good and left the bad okay fair enough what was your favorite character in sg1 oh probably teal i always loved him he was a perfect straight man foil for o'neill um i've met christopher (laughs) judge in person and he's he's kind of not as much like that character as you would think he's actually very straight laced but but has a very humorous side um Met him twice, actually. He's getting a little old to play the Teal character, of course, which is why I think a lot of that ended. All of them were. Uh, but I just love the character. When And when he met uh, Ronan in, in Atlantis was one of my all-time favorites. Okay. I liked uh, Ronan, too. He was, a, he was a good character. So let me add that to the show notes real quick. 
All right. Yeah, Momoa is a Momoa is a fascinating guy too. I've met him a couple times as well. Yeah, he seems like uh, pretty funny. There's some funny pictures out there of him with his bodyguards, and his bodyguards are like tiny compared to him. And I'm just in my head, I'm picturing like the mini bosses before the final boss in a video game. <laughs> the difference is, is he um, Momoa doesn't like guns. It's not his thing. So that's these guys are basically shooters. They're you know they're they're trained bodyguards. They will do that kind of stuff. If you got in hand-to-hand range, Momoa's got a couple of martial arts specialties. He'd probably F you up pretty thoroughly. I, I think more than that, it's also <laughs> a liability thing. Whereas if they're... Oh, oh absolutely. you got a guy who's a franchise person for the, the DCU now, so they're, they're going to protect their asses with that guy. Well, I just, I just meant yeah, if they had yeah. to do something to stop it, it's easier. I mean, if they're trained, it gives them a layer of protection because they're probably bonded and insured as well. The guard. Yeah, absolutely. And the uh, the whole bit about trying to get a concealed carry license as a non-security person that can go anywhere in the country, it's almost impossible. It just makes more sense to hire them. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's still a funny picture. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just uh. – Yeah, I, I saw the one you did too. The, the one dude's like a foot and a half shorter than the mother. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> that's, his, that's the bodyguard? <laughs> absolutely. So yeah. before we move on from the Stargate part of things, so did you like Stargate mm-hmm. Universe? I loved it absolutely the right answer terry mixon says it's horrible but he's a heathen he probably uh, eats pineapple on his pizza too i <laughs> bastard uh i'd actually <laughs> recommend you go back and rewatch it from the beginning because it's a lot like firefly it really picked up as they got going they started finding their footing and it wasn't intentionally the same show it had a very different feeling i love the interplay of the characters you actually had complicated characters in the series that they won the sg1 characters they were mostly straight up, you know what they were, and they didn't change in their character type. They evolved, but they didn't change. The most, I think the one who changed the most was Teal, actually, from the beginning to the end. But yeah. by, the, by the fifth season, Teal was Teal, and that was about it. When the whole, they started killing off all of the uh, system boards and everything, Teal kind of solidified. Um, I had Master Braytech, I actually love that character. Too. Oh, me too. <laughs> um, yeah, it would suck when they killed him. Uh, Spoilers! <laughs> well... Well, you know, he's um, he in my former universe. I know you're in the the, uh, the other one, but one of the characters I'm reintroducing from Cartwright's Cavaliers is the uh, the top sergeant Murdoch, who is believed to be dead in the first book. He's actually alive, but the great thing about him having fun writing him is because he's basically almost 80 years old, but he's had some treatment to keep him younger. Um, spoiler alert! Another person who does stuff like that in the universe. Anyway, I love the idea of the old. What's the line says? Beware an old man in a, in, a, in a profession that usually you die young. Yes. That kind of thing. So that Master Braytex exactly that kind of character as well. Yeah, the grittiness that people hated about SGU was what I loved about it. They actually ran out of supplies, and so they scavenged off their uh, fallen because you know he doesn't need his boots anymore, kind of thing. I, I well, like that realism. The, the lead character basically tried killing another character, leaving him for dead on a planet for crying out loud. He had it coming though, Rush. Come on, <laughs> Rush was a pe- Rush was a piece of shit, but we all loved him. I always thought he was a bit after the Boltar character from the remake of Battlestar Galactica. Fun character. I liked him. He's very complicated as well. Yeah, I, I liked it. But it's that time of the show, ladies and gentlemen. So we're going to pause while we shamelessly show for the man. Hey, listeners, Josh Hayes here, co-host of Keystroke Medium. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Sci-Fi Shenanigans. I tell you, we're really excited about what JR and Chris are doing with the podcast and are proud to feature them as part of our podcast partner network. 
When you get done listening to this episode, I'd like to invite you to come check out our own podcast at keystrokemedium.com. You can find all our previous episodes and check out all the amazing authors we've had on the show. If you're free on Mondays, mark your calendars for 11 a.m. Come hang out with us as we talk to today's leading science fiction and fantasy authors and other industry professionals. We've got a great live audience who get into a lot of shenanigans of their own, as JR and Chris can attest. That's every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time, live on Keystroke Media. We're going to talk about some reading, we're going to talk about some writing, and of course, everything in between. And now I'll let you get back to some more shenanigans with JR and Chris. Have a great day. All right, welcome back to this episode where we're interviewing Mark Wandry. We got a little bit derailed talking about our love for Stargate, so let's go back to talking about the book, which is the reason he's here. So we we also detected Shades of Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, which you admitted in the how you came up with the idea. So there goes all my research down the drain. Wow. So um, I was going to ask you what it, uh, did that inspire you, but since we know that was the case. What is it specifically, do you think, if you could pin it down to just one thing about Ender's Game that appealed to you, that sort of motivated you, what would that one thing be? The, uh, the idea of the child warrior having this vision that adults often don't see. Um, Ender was a – if you've read the book, spoiler alert, there's actually – he's the third attempt for them to try to get this warrior they want out of the family – the, the first child was psychotic. The second child was too much of a – too compassionate. The third child, Ender, was perfect balance of all of that. And that blended in with the foresight and the ability to command to make what they were looking for. They needed the perfect weapon. And the idea of looking to a younger person like that was very appealing to me. I, I think it was endearing. And when you read the book – the, the movie did an okay job, and I've, I've seen Orson Scott Card, and I know he'd been trying to have it made for years, but every time he did, they tried making it into a, a date film, he called it, basically, and he didn't want that. There's a little bit of hint of it in the movie with Petra, which actually was in the book as well, but she was a lot older than him, so and it wasn't something that was going to happen. So when they, when they made the movie, they, they hit on a lot of it well, but the big reveal at the end was a little flat. I wish they pulled it better, because when you read the book for the first time, and I was pretty young when I read it, it was a major oh shit moment when you realize what had just happened. It was yeah. Scott Card nails it in that scene. And that's the kind of thing I've always wanted to do is have those kind of reveals in a story because it just smacks the reader in the face in the best possible way, mind you. You know, what do we love when we're reading a book? We love to be surprised. And the better of a reader you are, the harder it is to do that. Yeah. And, and the more you read, sometimes you start seeing things like you see it coming. I'm I'm a terror at a movie. You can ask my wife. I'll I'll a lot of movies. I'll lean over a third of the way through and go, "This is what's going to happen." So, and, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm one of the ones I got surprised with the most. I always say was uh, uh, Sixth Sense with Shyamalan. His the one movie that made his career because he hasn't made crap since the yeah. reveal at the yeah. end. There's a ghost. I got it when the ring hit the floor. I literally was not expecting that. That that was a really good carry out. And the great thing is, when you go back and look at it, they you see the videos they talk about. It, there's all these scenes where you should have caught it. Book of Eli is another one. I was surprised oh, by that, that as well. Oh, great. me too. That was a great movie. But the opening scene with um, who's the actor again plays him? Um, oh, um, Denzel. Denzel Washington. Yeah. Was it him? The opening scene. Yeah, Denzel Washington. In the opening scene, when he's in the kitchen and he opens the cabinet and he starts knocking all the plates off, they made it look like it was casual, but that was a blind man looking for something. It was. Yeah. Friggin', so right through the opening scene, they've told you this guy's blind. Then we ignored it for the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, because he could have just been clumsy, and then everything that followed left you. 
Exactly, but as, as we call writers, what they did is they hung a lantern on it. And that's your way of saying when you look back later, you go, holy shit, you're right. And, you know, he had the power of God being able to shoot and hit people. It was it was a nice combination. I, I, we're getting off track again, but that's one of my favorite movies. So so just so you know, dear listener, when we record this, there's a little chat bar running so we can give each other messages if we have to skip questions and whatnot. And Chris is over here giving me grief, telling me, oh, I can totally hear you eating those hurricane snacks. I promise you I'm not eating anything. I'm just allergies <laughs> from this weather. I've just been coughing. So I'm trying to mute it when I can, but what, what is a hurricane snack anyway? Uh, just stuff that you don't have to cook. So if you lose power. Oh, see, um, I'm one of those people that's smart enough to not be anywhere near where hurricanes can hit. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there was a uh, meme that the um, disgruntled veterans website put out that said, um, you've got to stop eating the hurricane snacks or you're not going to be too big to fit in the little rescue basket. <laughs> <laughs> nice. yeah. So I, sh- I, like that. I I shared that, and he's been giving me grief ever since. So, <laughs> well, you asked for that, right? Probably. He told me. Well, I, we had one. Um, actually, we've gotten it twice now. That said, either Chris Winder needs to step up his insult game, or I need to be nicer to him because it's starting to become uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> People have been once, scolding him. It's great. And once again, we're completely off track. <laughs> Absolutely. So, back to your books. Anyway, so um, thoughts on Ender's Game, the movie adaptation. You want to go round two on the movie versus the book? <laughs> um, it, it's one of those ones that I did, I wasn't horribly disappointed. You know, like Ready Player One, I was not impressed at all. Um, I'm a big person. I like to read the book and watch the movie. That's the way I am. Seldom do I see a book where I haven't read the – see a movie that I haven't read the book. And I thought Ready Player One was they, they chopped it so badly and they just lost the flavor of it. And I knew from the beginning they would because the book covers this wide, diverse area of fandom and, and games. That I knew they couldn't get it all. You can't get the IP to do that kind of thing. So and anyway, I don't want to get into it. But Ender's Game, they did an above average job with that, probably as best as they could. The only thing my biggest gripe was they effed up the ending completely. The, the reveal of the uh, of a surviving uh, Formix was stupid in the extreme. They should never have done that. As a writer, I was like, what are you thinking? You know, it was – anyway, well, that's just me. In all fairness, Orson Scott Card's imagination is bigger than the tech ability to, to create. Uh, well, these days, I don't necessarily agree. Part of it was I'm sure they were trying to basically explain it to the average, you know – knuckle dragger out there what was going on but i think it could have been done with exposition because he has a psychic link with the queen so it doesn't have to happen in real life that's just me so back back to your uh, earth song cycle books it's it's clearly a series because well you said it's a series and there's more than one uh what do you what do you see as next for the characters without revealing too much well, the next book that's about to come out is uh, Earth Song Twilight Serenade. It was now these are all being re-released because they've been majorly re-edited and worked and everything. So people who read it before are in for any surprises. But Twilight Serenade takes it to a period where the the beginning of the story after the second book, when there are 500 years in the future, I kind of establish a universe with stargates and no ships, and it's explained that ships can't exist because they're not practical because of the stargates. Well, over the next couple of books, you're led to realize that actually that's a big fat lie. And people still have ships, but only certain races have ships. They have to be badasses. I call them higher order races. These are the ones running the show. And this is very much a galaxy in descent. There are worlds that are called junk piles, which are which are obviously used to be these mega Olopolis worlds with a billion with a hundred billion people living on them. And now there's nobody there. All there is is stuff. And people are fighting over them to salvage material off of them. 
So you get a feeling of Rome near the end going on in this world. And these higher order species are straddling all of this disaster and riding it out fat and pretty because they still have spaceships. Well, in Twilight Serenade, Minu is leader as as the as the leader of the chosen, basically, and her her army she's created because humans never had armies before this. She's realizing that humanity has to be armed and dangerous, otherwise we're going to get eaten alive. And she's moving them to that point, and she's continuing to strive to create her own war fleet. She has one ship that she found, and she wants a lot more. And this is the effort as the story begins to evolve. Her trying of this vision of her with humanity, with powerful armies, and a space fleet. So we'd be able to stand on our own before a big bad guy comes along and swats us dead, which almost happened on Earth 500 years ago. Wow. I, I, I'm seeing this all in my head as you're describing it. All right. Um, so it's really it's some of the best stuff I've created. I think it actually exceeds the Four Horsemen universe in a lot of ways. Um, it's been compared to Isaac Asimov's Foundation. This is deep blue hero shit. I love writing it. The problem is it hasn't got as much traction as I want. So we're pushing hard to try with this re-release and try to get it spun up. So that people can discover this and go, wow, there's already six books and he's working on the seventh and the eighth. You know what I mean? So right. uh, I'm hoping it catches on better. All right. So be, besides starships, are you going to have any faster than light travel, ray guns, teleporters? Oh, uh, yeah. The, the the ships, the main ship that she gets is referred to as a, a Catan ship of the line. It's capable of 15,000 times the speed of light. It's friggin' fast. And in addition to that, the I mentioned the, the Stargates we talked about. There's actually a way these ships can make their own stargates. They call them tactical jump jumps, where they can jump like 20,000 light years in one hop. Uh, nice. These were the, the main weapons of, a, of an extinct species known as the Lost. And in fact, that's the, 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 uh, the Lost Aria, the name of the third book, that references to them when she finds the ship. It was their pinnacle of achievement. And they had a cataclysmic war. A million years ago, and they ended up losing. But their ships are still lying around, and the, the other higher order species have been trying to get those ships because they think it's the key for one of them to have dominance over the other. It's kind of a cold war between five big, uh, powerful, you know, higher order species. And and Minu is realizing that humanity is getting stuck in the middle of all this, and she doesn't like the idea. She's a redhead. She doesn't take no for an answer. <laughs> well, with all these other universes that you're writing, how do you keep how do you keep all the the facts and the tropes and 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 the feel of each universe separate. I wish I knew. <laughs> it just I, happens. I just, just good luck. I, I just do. Uh, I, I do keep notes. I have spreadsheets and things like that. But mostly that's character names and things like that. The details of how the universe works, the technology, the feel of it, it just comes automatically. I can switch over and start writing. I had to write an intro to um, uh, Anthem. Originally, uh, Etude to War was one book of 260,000 words. Um, yeah, my publisher, Chris, who Chris Kennedy publishing, also my partner in the course, and he took one look at this and says, no, (laughs) we ended up splitting into two books and it it really worked well because there was a midpoint in the story anyway. But when I did that, I had to write an intro to the second book, which was now the sixth book. And I have in fifth book and I haven't touched that world in over two years. I fell right into it. It it was no problem at all. Uh, All of it was still there. It kind of surprised me to tell you the truth, but it's one of my. One of my powers, I guess you could say. <laughs> nice. So, so I don't know if Jared has the same fear as I do, but I have a fear that I'm going to be sitting on a panel somewhere someday, crossing my fingers, and one of my fans is going to ask me a question about one of my books, and I'm not going to remember anything about the character or the situation. Do you ever worry about that? Um, only tans- uh, tansedly, tansedly, tentatively, whatever, you know, it, words are hard. A little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, possibly. Uh, I haven't, I don't have a massive uh, back folder yet. I mean, you know, 
I've been on panels with David Weber and David Drake and, you know, uh, uh, Timothy Zahn, all these guys who've written a shit ton more books than I do. Is this is PG 13 or R by the way? I keep dropping the S. It's okay. It's whatever you make it. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, they've written, written shit tons more books. I mean, David Weber's, I think close to 60 books or something like that. They seem to be able to pull these details out of their ass without any difficulty. So I'm beginning to think that my ability to keep this straight is not unique to people who write these large series. Um, <laughs> now my worry partly is the collaborative works that I've done with Chris and stuff in my universe that I didn't write because the honest thing is I don't have time to read it all anymore. I read all the mainline stuff in the story, but the, the four horsemen tales, the anthologies, I don't have time to read every single thing. So yes, I can get blindsided and we're right now really crossing our fingers that we don't um, step on our own things, schwongs, you know, um, <laughs> because we're, we just published the 20th book. So it's becoming a very deep universe very fast. Um, yeah. So I guess the answer to your question is, yeah, I, I worry about it, but I don't lose sleep over it. <laughs> well, the, the thing you have going for you is that most of your – well, a, a large number, at least for now, of your series are the same universe, whereas like David Weber, he's all over the place. Like, yes, he has the Honorverse, but he also has several others with other authors, and some of those he wrote you know, two decades ago. <laughs> so off, off, off Infinity Shore or whatever or Armageddon Reef, that's one of his others. That's a complicated frigging world. I I honestly don't know how the guy just ejaculates two hundred thousand words and there it's a book. You know he's and he does this all via I use the e word. He does this all via Dragon Software now too. He dictates his books. Wow. I would really like to learn how he does that because that's pretty cool. But every time I do, I it doesn't flow like I type. I learned to type when I was thirteen years old, and now the words just come out of my fingers. It's it's the connection that I make. I watch the words appear on the screen. I touch type. I never look at the keys because I'm a touch typist. And it's it's that natural connection to me. I don't know how I would break that connection, but David has. Well, it's one of those things where uh, necessity is the mother of all inventions. Yeah, probably. So. He didn't have much of a choice. He was having problems with his hands. Yeah. Yeah, he told that story on the Keystroke Medium interview. Um, I'll link that in the show notes about when he hurt his hand. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, he broke his wrist, and, and then we almost broke David Weber again at Dragon Con. That was awesome. Oh, that would not be good. He said, "Yeah, no, you didn't hear. You didn't hear about that. Uh-uh. We had a range trip party before Dragon Con on uh, on Thursday, and he showed up for Thursday morning for the range trip. There's a whole bunch of fans, me and uh, the person who organized everything. And David steps down the stairs and looks at him. We go, "Hey, David!" He looks up and he waves and he misses the last step and he face plants on the floor. Ouch! Oh, with a 50 pound range bag over his shoulder. Oh, and then he slid and he hit head first into a desk. So, um, yeah, he lifted up. And then kind of dropped it to the ground, and I thought, oh, good. We just killed David Weber. Uh, it was uh, – <laughs> yeah. he ended up only like, – I think he, he broke his nose and he bit his lip. Uh, but the thing is he landed on his right wrist, the one that was basically full of ironmongery and all of that. And it started swelling up right away. That was the real worry is he'd uh, given himself a concussion maybe and messed up his wrist again. But, you know, everything oh, turned out okay. Man. But it was a really scary moment there. He's – He's not a young man, he's, but he's a big guy. It was a hard fall. Yikes. So, all right. Well, that time it wasn't me that derailed us, I promise. They're used to me, though. <laughs> but um, It was me. I'll take credit for that. So um, is this series one you see expanding with other authors like you do with The Four Horsemen? Or is this one you're keeping all to yourself? This series has an ending. And if the fans don't know that, I'll tell you now. This has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And uh, six books into it now, the end is in sight. So it is coming. And if you're reading it, you know that because it's getting really, you know, 
cataclysmic in some ways. So it will come to an end. I don't envision it continuing afterwards. I have thought of writing a book afterwards called um, Ovation, because you notice all the titles have musical elements to them. But I, I, it would be about the war with the, uh, the lost one I talked about a million years ago. I'm just not sure if there's a book there, and I'm not sure if there'd be any interest. So, yep. All right. So this book um, has aliens in it. So how do you come up with them? Do you let nature inspire you, or you try to create aliens from whole cloth? What's, the, uh, what's in your head when you're creating these aliens? Uh, a little bit of that, same as the Four Horsemen universe. I try to let see what's in nature and what might work. The other part is I started writing this series, the first series I ever wrote, the Earth Song series. It was my first dabble into actually writing for publication. So I hadn't quite opened my imagination as much. So most of the major alien races in this are literally taken whole cloth from a role-playing game that I ran back in the late 80s. I lifted every frigging alien race from it with all of my, my, my fans and my, not my fans, my friends who are in those games permission. I took it all from them. It's absolutely hilarious. Every major race in there was in a role playing game that I ran a traveler game actually back in the late 1980s. Nice. Yep. See, I knew that kind of stuff could happen. (laughs) (laughs) And that'll be in the show notes, people, the traveler RPG. So if you're not familiar, you can look it up. Um, And that's, that's classic traveler, by the way, with, only six stats, and when you got hit by a weapon, you actually got either weaker, stupider, or slower. <laughs> Outstanding. All right, so according to the description of book one, we see that an asteroid is bearing down on Earth. So how close to the real science did you stick when you added this to your series? Was it hand or factual? The other original was pure hand The rewrite, I consulted multiple um, physicists, including Stephanie Osborne, and other people like that to get the numbers down right. What happens in there is exactly what would happen in physics. All right. Wow. So a little touch of hard sci-fi. Yes. Yes. Uh, in a pure space opera book, there's a there's a hint of sci- of actual hard science fiction. Yes. And what was the uh, scientist you consulted? Uh, Stephanie Osborne. She worked for NASA. She's on Facebook. Uh, you can add a link to her. I'm sure she wouldn't mind. Um, she's helped me out quite a bit in writing stuff, especially in that book, an overture when I have a detonation in the Gigaton range. All right, I will look her up and add it oh, to the right. show notes. So that peaceful little um, little explosion, you know. You yeah, just it. small. It almost only cracked the planet. That's all. <laughs> you know, it happens. So it does. Uh, I've skimmed your reviews and found one of them mentioned dinosaurs, and I've got a soft spot for our reptilian predecessors. So, uh, what made you decide to include dinos? Um, the world they go to, Bellatrix, was kind of a primitive planet. It was a lot like the Earth in the, uh, not the Cretaceous, the Triassic period. And I figured if I'm going to do something like that, complete with trees that are more like ferns than trees, I had to put some dinosaurs on it. So I created a, what I, they call it a Komodo sloth, or it later becomes known as a cloth. Um, and it's, think of like a, a Komodo dragon that's 20 feet long with sloth-like qualities and six eyes. Um, they're, they're fun. Uh, I have a lot of fun with them by the, uh, by the beginning of the second book, the, the colonists 500 years later have largely been able to deal with them, but they still play a central element even in the second book. Okay. So I'll add that to the show notes. So a Komodo dragon and a sloth. So if you guys want to look at what he was inspired by, you can click the link and it'll probably just be a quick little Wikipedia link or a, a image, um, search, but I'll throw in something so you can see it. 
Um, and then we'll move on. So as I've said earlier, I skim the reviews like I always do. This helps the right readers find the right books. So dear listener, please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. So the first book in this series has 28 reviews, all of them four or five stars. They all mentioned that the story was fun and the characters were engaging. So how do you go about crafting fun characters that your readers love? What's, what's the secret for you when you're writing? Um, I try to make the books and the characters as as relatable to real life as absolutely possible. Um, I, I did watch some stuff and talk to other authors, and I would an author would give me a piece of advice, and I would take that to heart as much as possible. And one of them was, "Be sure even your hero has zits." And I don't remember which which author told me this, but I know it was at a con early on before I'd actually started writing professionally. And I took that to heart, and I made sure that no matter how badass my hero or heroine is. Uh, Heroin? That didn't come out right. Um, they, they still have zits. They have problems. They have they're they're real people when it comes down to it. And some of the worst writing I've seen are ones where the, the heroes are completely infallible. Uh, they don't make mistakes. They don't make bad decisions, and they don't regret their mistakes because uh, everybody makes mistakes. Right. Okay. Not a. Oh, and actually, the reviews for Overture. Uh, if you go back to the original version of it, uh, there's it has a lot more reviews. Uh, I can't find the original one here because it's not showing up my author page. I think it originally had more than 100 reviews before it was re-released. Okay. Um, yeah, that's part of why we're talking is because I'm hoping to get some more interest back into the series. Absolutely. So continuing with the analysis of the reviews, which uh, like most people I look at before buying a novel, all of them seem to think you nailed it with the pacing um, of the action. So how will you manage to keep that up as you wrap this series up? Um, I think I have three primary um, skills as an author. One of them is characterization we talked about. Uh, the other one is world making. My website's worldmaker.us because everybody loves my world making skills. It's something that I've come by really well. I've developed that ability. That wasn't natural for me though. And the last one was pacing. I'm, I have a really good sense of natural pacing. I've occasionally had to go back in and tweak something when I reread it and realize it kind of falters, but uh, it's something I've been able to do pretty well. And keeping it up through this whole series I try to treat a series like a book, that being that when you write a good book, the pacing continues to build with occasional slowdowns as you take the, what do they call the, the, the valleys and hills, hills and valleys. The, the, each valley is, is leads to another hill, and the next valley is not quite as low as the previous one, so you're building that pace as you go. I try to do that in a series as well. So I'll tell you, as this goes on, you could call the next three books to be probably the last quarter of – last three books to be the last quarter of the series, so it's like the last quarter of a book all of the really intense stuff's going to happen. And some of these books you're not going to be able to put down. And that's when I, when I read a review where they say I couldn't stop reading it, that's a win. All right. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I was waiting for Chris to ask the next one, but he didn't see my comment in the thread, so I'll just go ahead and ask. He just loves to ask this question, but are there any updates about other right. forms of media to come out, RPGs, movies, video games, etc., for the Earth Song? Uh, for Earth Song, no. It, it hasn't been popular enough right now to justify us going to the next level. We're hoping if the sales jump up with with the first new release book that we would actually consider uh, going to uh, maybe Audible, uh, ACX or somebody having the first audiobooks produced. Uh, but unlike the Four Horsemen universe that sells you know like hotcakes, we haven't we we couldn't go to somebody like Podium or or Tantor and say, hey, you want to do this? Because they take one look at the sales ratings and go, yeah, I don't think so. So. No, not right now. Hopefully in the future. I, personally, I think this would – I write cinematically in this universe, and I think the the uh, Earth Song universe would make damn good movie or made for TV or something like that. So if anybody's listening, uh, it's available. 
Well, I mean, with the uh, the rise of like um, Amazon Prime videos and all the other streaming platforms, uh, the options are a yep. lot more available than they used to be. And at least – Well, and the technology works so much better too. You don't need a supercomputer to do CGI now. You can do it on the average desktop PC. And you're, right. you're seeing the, the breadth of that, of course. Some of it's actually cringeworthy like Sharknado as you mentioned. But there's some relatively low-budget stuff that I've seen that, that's spectacularly well done. The only challenge I would see with the the Earth Song universe is there's a butt ton of aliens. There's entire books of you know humans and aliens everywhere. So that'd be a bit of a challenge, but uh, rubber masks are cheap too, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So the um, wow, well, my mind just went blank. All right. So was there anything about the Earth Song Cycle series that we didn't ask that you want to before we move on? No, I think we hit it pretty well. Um, uh, I'll just reiterate: this is uh, you know a strong female character lead with this one. I did it because Andrew was a guy, so I wanted to do a girl. But when I when I ended up getting into it, I really enjoyed using a strong female lead for this. Uh, same as Alexis Cromwell in the Four Horsemen universe. I believe that there's a lot of room for these kind of characters and in, in, in worlds, and they often under uh, underplay them or overplay them. You know, uh, Ripley is a great example. I think of one that's a little bit a little bit overplayed um, for being a badass, but at the same time, then you have Sarah Connor, which I think is has she's got zits. There's what I was talking about. She's a great example of a character they did really well. So I hope people yeah. can pick this up and realize that, wow, I've got great female lead characters that I can enjoy reading about here. You know, they're women, but they're also heroes. You can put those two together and have a good result at the end. Mm-hmm. Well, since you've written a novel about about aliens or an alien invasion subgenre, what's your biggest pet peeve when you read about other stories like that? Remember to speak generally. We don't want to don't want to call out any authors, but as what do you for, see? That as for the uh, the the um, you mean books like uh, Earth Song? Yeah, alien alien invasion subgenre mostly. Uh, the alien invasion subgenre is really challenging because uh, I am kind of a hard sci-fi guy. I like the stuff that has has gritty pieces, and it's harder than craft to do because they're not who's going to come here for our water. You know, uh, they're not going to come here to 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 steal our women. Uh, so it's hard to come up with the one that works, and so many of them are just crappy reasons. Uh, Independence Day, great example. Why did they come here? Because they're locusts and they just destroy everything. Well, if they're after resources, the outer the outer veil has more resources than our planet does. Why would they bother? Um, a, good example, a good example, uh, Parnell Dimmons' footfall. It's perfect. They're doing it because of what they do. They were looking for a, 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 a target they could move out to an attack like us. It's, it's old, but it's a good book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's absolutely brilliant. In fact, before uh, Pornell died, I had actually pitched to his agent that I would I had an idea for a sequel, but uh, would love to have wrote it. Um, it's it's a fascinating world. I I am in total awe of their their crafting with that one. Okay, uh, you, you also said the story in the first context of genre. So what do you what do you think about the first contract uh, first contact stories actually appeals to readers? Um, I think we like to at this stage in our our evolution as a race, we we love to sit back and think. Um, we're not alone. We're, you know, we're at every corner of this planet. We are the dominant race. Uh, there, there's, there's hints of, ali- of, of, of uh, animal intelligence. We think the dolphins might have a certain level of intelligence. We're sure most cetaceans do, but they're not like us. They're of a different order. They're actually fairly alien, I guess you could say. We, we like the idea of there being someone out there we could meet and talk to. The first contact is one of the most endearing, long-term science fiction threads you're going to run into. Right after, you know, followed shortly behind by the aliens do show up and then try to eat us. But um, <laughs> I think it's in our nature. We're humans are explorers. 
this is why you're, I'm so excited about what we're seeing with technology now. I think we're finally we're on the verge of actually leaving this rock, and it's about damn time. Nice. So, personal opinion: Do you think there are aliens out there? Yes, has to be. I think so too. I'm with uh, good company. I'm with um, uh, what's his name, Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, if there isn't, it's an awful waste of space. You know, um, right? <laughs> come on, there's trillions of galaxies, so take that alone. But in our own in our own galaxy. There's probably 10,000 planets that are just as habitable by us with Earth, and that doesn't even take into account non-carbon-based life forms. Yes, absolutely. Well, I bet we're going to find them in our lifetime. I'm not talking sentient, but with the discovery of water on Mars, I think. Yeah, that that, and I think they're talking about the Titan, the the, uh, Titan probe? No, uh, water planet circling Jupiter. Europa? Europa, yes, with the idea of the, right. the tunneling Europa probe, I, I'm willing to bet we're going to find something living under the ice down there. It's an ideal situation for it. I mean, we've got black smokers here. There, there's going to be something there, probably. If not, I will be really surprised. I think I'd be really disappointed. You'd be disappointed. I think everybody would be. Well, I think they yeah. found. Now they haven't been able to verify because they just saw it visually and they can't test anything. But but they also fall what saw what they thought was. And, um, indentations in mars with the rover at one point in time they thought that could be proof so mm-hmm. well this is the, this is the reason you get people to mars instead of friggin' robots because robots don't improvise you know it's it's not the same thing so go elon musk <laughs> okay jared go ahead and say you know you want to say it your boyfriend i'm trying to be nice <laughs> Ta-da, there he is <laughs> um, all right finally this book was also placed in the uh, space exploration subgenre of science fiction. Mm-hmm. What is it about exploring the unknown reaches of the, of the universe that you think, as as an author and as a reader, a- appeals to everybody? As I touched on it, humans are natural explorers. We, we always have been. It's part of our nature. Well, it's part of any life on Earth. It always tries to move into new areas and, and expand. As we've become inte- an intelligent species, it, it just was pushed even farther. Look at the Polynesians. Unbelievable. Who, who the hell oh, would climb onto right. a pile of reeds, shove off to distance and see where you landed? There, there must have been thousands of them that just got either shark bait or just never landed anywhere and died. But they never stopped. They, they're probably the greatest explorers in the history of mankind up till the first ones that climb onto a rocket and say, light this candle. They're amazing people. And it, they, they epitomize everything about humanity and how we are. We, we want to go to the places nobody's done and see what's there. It's it's one of the great things about mankind. I think we're we're curious beyond belief, and it's an unsatiable curiosity. Now, while, while I think that's generally true, I think the number of people who would actually do the exploring is pretty low. For instance, uh, we've asked this question before: if a Stargate was actually invented, uh, would I walk through or would I push Jr. through? <laughs> and of course, I push Jr. through first, you know, and then find out if everything's um, okay. 20 years ago, I'd be the first one through, but now I'm realistic. I'm 54, uh, not in great shape. And, you know, just uh, I'm aging. I, I spent a lot of my life at 400 pounds and that didn't do me any good. Wow. Now that I'm older, not that much, but um, I, I would be happy to write checks for other people to do it. I want to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Home videos, home videos. Exactly. All right. So enough about your books, Mark. Shameless plugging is over. So what are you reading in the genre of science fiction? mostly stuff from my own universe right now it's all i have time for um i like to go back to the classics you know like i mentioned football i've read the book a dozen times uh i read stuff that's influencing what i'm trying to write right now so when i went to write zombie apocalypse i read a ton of stuff 
in that genre to try to find what I wanted to do and get my feet under me before I wrote a book. Um, right now, uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm actually anything cued right now. I read Larry Korea stuff just because he's a master of his, of his, of his, uh, uh, art. The man can just produce a book that's unbelievable. So I love his monster hunter stuff. That's one of the things when it comes out, I buy it. I don't even think about it. Um, I'd be the same with Ringo in his, um, Tory series, but he's, you know, too busy doing other stuff and he can't figure out what to do with it. So we're all disappointed on that one. I, which I try not to be as an author, by what the series? way, uh, I don't, uh, his Troy series. It's uh, it's uh, a lot, it's a lot like uh, earth song. Actually, when I discovered it, I'm like, Holy crap, this is a lot like my stuff, but it's more, there's no stargates. It's all hyperspace. And there's vast galactic empires out there sort of thing. Um, really good books. The first one is Troy rising or the hot gate or something like that. Uh, worth a pickup. It's some of his best stuff. If you ask me. Nice. In fact, I might reread that. That's actually a good. Idea. All right. <laughs> I do a lot of right. I do a lot of audiobooks, a ton of them. We have hundreds in our library, me and my wife. So when I had my first audiobook come out, that was a severe fanboy moment. It's like I <laughs> hear my words in somebody else's mouth. That was pretty- absolutely. So I um I've met Larry Korea. He's a he's a intimidating looking fella. So you- the International Order of Hate. Yeah, actually, he's a personal friend. I met him before he really completely took off. He only had a couple books out, and I met him in a little con called constellation in huntsville alabama that doesn't go on anymore and he was the guest of honor is about a 250 person con it tells you how long ago it was for him he wouldn't go to one that small now unless it was local and i spent most of the week and had lunch with him twice and talked and he coached me a lot in suggestions he's the reason i kept going he was uh he's an awesome guy yeah, I'm, I'm, he was at honor con where i met you so we had breakfast together he's let me just say it was easier to talk to him when he sat down <laughs> oh yeah he's he's about six four and about 320 pounds i think he's and a, not much he's a mountain he's, he's a he's a built dude you can definitely yeah, he, he's trying to get back in shape he admits it but yeah he's he's not some big chunker he's just a big friggin dude what what makes it so nice chris because i know you weren't there is is that you know you you're always you fear when you meet these people that you you've idolized their books or whatever and then they turn out to be jerks right like with larry that was not the case he was super friendly he knew me from adam and he sat and we had breakfast together and he just we talked it's it's always cool he, to meet them is, when they're he, genuinely nice people he's not at all what you might expect if you've seen him involved in some internet you know shenanigans he he, he does something called fisking somebody says something really stupid he just disassembles it and it's 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 epic to see do it you think wow this guy must be a real hard ass you meet him in person he's the nicest guy you'd ever meet <laughs> absolutely so what about you chris what are you reading i'm uh i'm reading black swan planet by james peters hmm. And just a forewarning, this is a this is not a kid safe book. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> All right. Just wow. So far there has been a chimpanzee and assless chaps. And Whoa. that's only the beginning. Is this a uh, space oh, comedy like the oh. uh, Barry Hutchinson you read? Um Barry Hutchinson is one kind of space comedy. This is more like Mad Magazine meets Something even more bizarre than Mad Magazine. I can't even think of. <laughs> okay. My input buffer was kind of running behind a minute there. Did you say a chimp in assless chaps? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, I did. I have nothing. I, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I, I might just check that out just because I want to know the context of that scene. Uh, I know. Uh, yeah. What can you say? <laughs> wow. All right. You win this round, Chris. <laughs> you win this time. 
Thank you, James Peters. So I, uh, I'm just starting book seven in the Galaxy's Edge universe. Um, so I got a little bit behind on my my reading when my wife was sick, but she's doing better. So now the only thing slowing me down is the lack of audiobooks and uh, the fact that my Kindle died. So I'm reading on my cell phone, which I, oh, no. I'm not any young, uh, getting any younger. So my eyes just can't take that small screen. So I'm I'm saving. Is that Nick Cole, yeah. Nick Cole series? Yeah, the Galaxy's Edge. Nicole and Jason on Spock. Asbach. On Spock. Uh, yeah. yeah, okay. I, I wasn't trying to have, it had ass in there somewhere. I wasn't trying to I met Nick personally because he 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 kicked my butt in my first Dragon Award nominee. The this was my third, by the way. I've had one every year. Well, from what I understand nice. from the organizer Dragon Con, the only person to have a book nominated all three years. So let's keep this up. Maybe uh next year you can win it. Yeah, I'd like to win one too. But Nick's a really nice guy. And he gave me some pointers, and he actually said I should have won. I was like, yeah, I would like that. <laughs> but he, um, his idea with Galaxy's Edge is brilliant because he's writing basically Star Wars-style books without the bullshit. So you know, more power right. to them. They're immensely popular books. I, I have a lot of fun reading them. So, but I, I'm a little biased since I have a book coming out in that universe here sometime soon. <laughs> there you go. But yeah. What did he say when he first described it? He said, the galaxy is a dumpster fire. <laughs> yes. And now you find- I use that line all the Me time. Me too. <laughs> I don't know if he came up with it, but that's just where I first heard it. And I love it. And that's perfect. Absolutely. So, yep. right. well, Congrats on the book, uh, JR. Hope it works out. Thank you. Thank you. It goes to editing next month, I believe, because um, they, they personally awesome. edit it for continuity before they send it to the copy editor. So I think I think Jason yeah. Onspock is the one. <clears throat> the Order of the Centurion series is what it is. It's like their Medal of Honor. And all the different authors, and I don't even know who everyone else is. They got invited. I, you know, they compartmentalize so they don't have like leaks. What's that? Loose lips sink ships or something? And um, yeah, exactly. And so I, I think Jason Onspock's editing mine for continuity. Nick got some of them, and then then they send it to their copy editor. So hopefully, I'll know more soon because I finished that it's pretty book. Pretty similar to what we do. I finished that book in February, so it's been killing me not talking about it because I had a lot of fun <laughs> with that one. <laughs> but um, I hear you, buddy. All right. So normally we ask about what scientific breakthroughs you're following, but we pre-recorded this um, in advance because of traveling and, and all of that, and with the hurricane coming out, um, you know, mm-hmm. with Florence. And so anything we said would have been dated. So instead, uh, what tech from fiction would you like to see? Tech from fiction? Yeah. What science fiction tech would you love to see? Fusion power. And why is that? Because it'll it'll completely change the whole planet. Um, this is the trick is the the greens are really kicking our asses right now because they want green renewable power, but they refuse to embrace nuclear power. And that gives them what they want. Every power source has a downside. You pick the most dense power you can find with the lowest downside and you follow it. If you really want to have an industrial society, that's why we did coal for so long. That's why we're doing oil now. Well, the next step is going to be nuclear and that would lead to fusion. It isn't going to be windmills and it isn't going to be solar cells because the wind doesn't blow sometimes and the friggin' sun sets. So yet one of the options would be orbital solar panels, solar farms actually, but that involves probably microwaving power to the surface and they don't want that either. So nuclear power, fusion power would change absolutely everything and then you'd have a nearly, well, a literally inexhaustible power source for our purposes because, well, hydrogen is, we have a lot of water and that's where hydrogen comes from. Um, and we would need probably moon processing facilities come up with H3 and things like that. It's it's perfect. This is what leads us off the planet and gives us all the power we want. So we stop worrying about having to dig it up and burn it or something like that. It, it's it's a game changer. I, I hate using that word, but it's absolutely true. A sustainable fusion reaction that would be workable and controllable. 
uh, that doesn't, you know, have a chance of taking out a city, it would change. It would change everything. All right. What about you, Chris? What would you love to see? Well, after that, <laughs> mine doesn't seem so important, but uh, space toilets, definitely space toilets. Oh my God, really? But, but I want the ones that teleport the waste out of you as you walk by, because that would save a lot of time. Just just imagine, you know, you just walk by. Oh, oh I feel better. You, you stagger and go, yeah, hold it. Where's my liver? <laughs> <laughs> Don't sneeze when you walk by. You might need that later. <laughs> no shit, right? My cold you, never see, you never see people on Star Trek. Saying, uh, Jim, I've got to go do this thing, um, you know, that all humans have to do. We would accept it. All humans have to do it. It's I, I always wanted to see an intense battle scene in the bridge. And Jordy gets up and runs to the head because he can't hold it any longer. One too many space right. MREs and boom, he's caught the trot. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? I had the, tr- I had the, str- the, the, uh, the stroganoff again. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, can, Captain, can we, can we delay this next battle? Like, uh, five minutes. I gotta go. I'm clenching a cone head. I need a break. I'll, I'll take the tablet to the potty. <laughs> nice. All Actually, right. maybe those chairs. Maybe those chairs have it built in. You never know. You never know. They, they never showed them <laughs> from the waist down. It's possible. <laughs> All right. And so for me, I, originally I had you know one of those replicators, you know, so you could just m- make matter appear because you know then you could just you know have steak on demand although would it taste like real steak i don't know or or a stargate was cool but then then mark went and got all sciencey and serious so i'll say maybe better batteries because that's the hold up on just about every tech is our our poor battery quality right now so if we could improve our battery or uh, nanofibers to make a space elevator viable. So they've already made it in centimeter lengths in a lab, but they don't really know how or why it happened. It was an unintended consequence of another experiment, and they spent decades trying to replicate it. So right now, the only thing – I mean, we could have built it in the 60s uh, for a space elevator. The only thing stopping us right now is the, uh, the, the rope, essentially, to go all the way up, and nanofibers would be strong enough. But we don't know how to replicate it large enough. Carbon nanotubes are probably going to be the solution, but like you said, they're not easy to make, especially in you know seven thousand mile long cables. I think mm-hmm. carbon nanotubes were the ones they made in the lab, and then they ended up not being um, not being able to replicate it to make them long enough. They're, they're they're making it right now, actually, in different types of applications. But the way you would have to have it for an elevator cable, it's the the tech is with. There's an old joke that says about fusion power; it's always twenty five years away. I'm afraid that, you know, replicatable long strand nanotubes are exactly that sort of technology. I don't know if we'll be able to. Yeah, it's too bad. All right. Well, as we wrap this show to a close, Mark, how can listeners find you? And as usual, all of the links will be in the show notes. Yeah, one of the basic ways is go to Facebook and put in Mark H. Wandry and I pop right out. There are some other Wandries, but they're all over in Europe and I don't like them anyway. Uh, so <laughs> you can find me there pretty easily. And uh, as obviously, you have my other links, uh, but that's the most addressable way. And join my Patreon. I, I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> not really. <laughs> well, I put it out because a lot of the people do it, and I thought it wasn't a bad idea. And I do offer some cool stuff, like the Jim Cartwright and Large Short Stories from Four Horsemen Universe. All my Patreon readers get those before anybody else. Can. Okay, nice. And what about us, Chris? How can they find us? Our website is www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter handle is at SFS, that's Sierra Foxtrot Sierra, underscore show. Our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. And our Shenanigans Facebook group is facebook.com slash group slash sfshenanigans. 
thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh, in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.